Mini episode 1131 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge, mini-episode number 1131. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris coming your way today. And we have another great conversation coming up with an author that we've had on the show a bunch of times previously. It is always a pleasure to delve into the various works uh, that he has. And uh, it's always a matter of when we have him on here. For the show that professes to be the show where nothing is off topic, really sort of proving that and sort of stretching the bounds here because he's always writing about new and interesting different topics. This one is a little far afield from what some of his past books have been. It is called Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, and I can probably do no better as far as summing up what this is about than uh, giving you a little blurb from the book jacket. So here goes. Jack Berman, the child of impoverished Holocaust survivors, uses his unlikely Andover pedigree to achieve the American dream, only to be cut down in an unimaginable act of violence. Will Daniel, Harry Truman's grandson and the son of the managing editor of the New York Times, does everything possible to escape the burdens of a family legacy he's ultimately trapped by. Harry Bull builds the life of a careful, successful Chicago lawyer and heir to his family's fortune before taking an inexplicable and devastating risk on a beautiful summer day, and the life and death of John F. Kennedy Jr., a story we think we know is told here with surprising new details that cast it in an entirely different light. Now, these four gentlemen came to mind for this author because he happened to know all of them, was friends to varying degrees with all of them at Andover back in the day, the legendary East Coast prep school. And uh, again, they all ran in the same circles at the time, and subsequently... There is a a burden that connects them of tragedy and of different types of tragedies. And so this is sort of an interesting walkthrough of their stories. You'll find some commonalities. You'll find a lot of differences. It is a fascinating read, and that is the one thing we can always say by any book that is written by William Cohen, and it is a pleasure to have him back on the show. William, thank you so much for making time for us today. How are you, sir? I'm great, Rick, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, I, uh, I really mean it because it's, uh, it's a great book, and it's always great to talk to you because you're, you're always taking uh, an interesting look at things, whether when we've had you on before, whether it be looking at uh, things with Lehman Brothers, whether it be the Duke lacrosse scandal. Uh, ultimately, uh, your, your writing and your investigations, and uh, it, sometimes in a non-author capacity, just in terms of as a columnist or other work that you do, but you're always taking an angle on this that I find intriguing. And uh, I know I talked a little bit about the thought process that you had here, but uh, I think the listeners would probably like to hear it from your lips as far as how this project sort of came together in your head with all these people you knew back in the day at Andover. Well, I think the first thing I wanted to do was to try to do something different than I had done before. You know, I'd written four books about Wall Street, uh, you know, three about uh, powerful firms and, you know, what happened to them during, during sort of their histories. 
uh, and uh, one book about the Duke Lacrosse scandal that you mentioned. Uh, and so uh, those were all books about you know, powerful institutions. And so I actually wanted to uh, write about uh, uh, Andover, an institution that is sort of also powerful in its way uh, and that I had you know, the privilege to attend, but I didn't want to write about Andover as an institution per se. I wanted to write about uh, what happened to four of my friends uh, who happened to be there at the same time that I was there and, um, you know, how they lived their lives after we went our separate ways. You know, nowadays we sort of take keeping in touch with everybody for granted. I mean, it's so easy between a, a cell phone or uh, some sort of social media account or connection. But back in the, you know, early to late 70s, uh, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, there was no social media. Uh, there was very uh, few ways to keep in touch with people. I mean, I suppose if you knew uh, somebody's payphone number in their dorm room at college, you could keep up with them. But let's face it, that's uh, not uh, <laughs> going to happen very yeah. often. And and most guys don't write guys letters. So, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, and so uh, this became a way for me to both uh, remember and reflect upon what happened to my friends and also have an, a serious uh, investigative reporting challenge like I'd had in my other books. So uh, in many ways, it gave me you know, this opportunity to do something different, to look at an institution from a different perspective, sort of turning the lens around a little bit by writing about these friends of mine and their experiences at Andover and then what happened to them after they left Andover and how they made their way in the world uh, before they met their untimely deaths. Uh, and it gave me, of course, uh, you know, a chance to, I mean, only John Kennedy, of course, was well known. And there was, of course, a lot of, uh, there have been books written about him and plenty of articles. The other three, uh, you know, presented me with quite a reporting challenge because I had to uh, go around and talk to their friends and their family members and their their widows uh, and their girlfriends and really figure out uh, how they had lived their lives uh, after they uh, left Andover and after I really didn't know them that well anymore. Uh, so for me, it was kind of the ultimate way to have a great intellectual challenge and also to remember my friends in a, in a special way. Well, you really, really told their stories uh, in, in a very, very compelling manner. There's no question about that. And as far as your point about the instant communications of today versus the way it was when you guys left school uh, subsequently, because one of the things that one of the predominant themes, obviously, of this book is the fragility of life, even for uh, you know scions of the rich and powerful, as uh, you know, pretty much all of these guys were to one degree or another, or or at least uh, successful individuals. Let's just say that. And uh, again. There had to be a grapevine of some kind of sort. Uh, when, when, when Jack was killed in the shooting in 93, it wasn't necessarily anything where he himself was big in the news, but that was, as you point out in the book, a notable shooting, uh, probably the most shocking act of violence in San Francisco since the fall of 78 with Moscone and Milk and the Jim Jones hangover at the time. So that was something that really shocked the conscience of the Bay Area and of uh, California. And then uh, these other things here, you look at the JFK Jr. thing, I believe chronologically that was the third of the four tragedies, and uh, subsequently 
the boating accident uh, afterwards with, uh, with Harry. You get the sense, though, that even if there had been instant communications, it might not have necessarily tr- changed the trajectory of anything. Uh, that uh, the, These individuals, particularly the three deaths subsequently, because there's really nothing that Jack probably could have done to avoid his. That seems like wrong place, wrong time. The other three, to one degree or another, they seem to have put themselves in that spot. And you get the sense that whether it be the hubris of, of thinking that you, you, you have life by the short hairs or whatever the case may be, it just seems to me that even in an age of instant communications, like, oh, look at what happened to this guy. Oh, you know, I, I don't want to have happen to me what happened to this guy. It seems like that that might not have changed the trajectory, even if they were fully aware of these other stories at the time. Do you have the same sense of that? Excuse me again. Uh, in, in, in many ways, I sort of came to the conclusion as I was writing this that um, they they died uh, very much like how they had lived uh, as a as a almost a consequence of how they had lived I mean uh, obviously uh, you know Jack Berman was definitely at the wrong place at the wrong time and there's nothing he could have done uh, differently uh, but you know he was such a good Samaritan he was such a good egg uh, he uh, was uh, uh, working at a law firm and convinced them in San Francisco and convinced them to essentially have a pro bono practice presenting uh, uh, people who felt they had been wrongfully dismissed from their uh, employment, place of employment. And he was representing a client who had gotten wrongfully dismissed, she thought, from EDS, which was Ross Perot's firm. And uh, he was uh, at the uh, EDS's law firm at 101 California, uh, at taking, you know, at administering the uh, deposition uh, for his client, uh, and then this disgruntled former uh, uh, client uh, of the law firm came in with a bag full of automatic weapons and began to uh, wreak uh, mass destruction. Uh, but I mean, if you know, you know, it's almost like Jack was such a good person and he was in this place and doing this wonderful thing for this client of his and unfortunately this was uh the end that he met uh right. uh you know, will will daniel uh always sort of lived a bit of a reckless life an itinerant life trying to run away from his grandfather from his family from his park avenue existence and yet uh you know he uh, probably drank too much, uh, I was a little too itinerant, and, you know, if, you know, how, how many 40-year-olds are, like, going to parties at 2 in the morning in Brooklyn with a bunch of work people? I mean, maybe that happens, but, you know, instead of going back to his apartment uh, where he lived in Inglewood, New Jersey, which made things difficult because he liked to, you know, stay in New York and Manhattan, he ended up having to go back to his family apartment on Park Avenue, and that's when he met his end. Uh, you know, Harry Bull, of course, uh, liked to go sailing in Lake Michigan and to take chances there that he probably shouldn't have taken. And of course, with John uh, Kennedy, I mean, I think this is a guy who grew up thinking that the normal rules of the road and of life and of of, of the end of uh, human existence didn't apply to him. You know, frankly, uh, I think that's probably, he wasn't wrong about that. I don't think any of the normal rules uh, of human behavior uh, applied to him. I mean, he's the only 
uh, child born to a president-elect in this country's history. Uh, he uh, literally grew up in the White House uh, until his father was assassinated. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, the way he saluted at his father's uh, funeral, uh, you know, uh, worked its way into our collective consciousness. And, you know, I literally watched people get into his presence and change their behavior to try to appeal to him and to try to make sure that they stayed in his circle. And so uh, he probably thought the regular rules of the road did not apply to him. So in answer to your question, I just sort of came to the conclusion that um, obviously social media wouldn't have changed any of this. It would have made it easier for us all to keep in touch. But, you know, I felt like in many ways um, these four guys died uh, a little bit as an outgrowth of how they had lived their lives. I think that's a very compelling common thread there. I would kind of agree with you after having read this book. I think that's a very good insight. Uh, a lot to unpack there with what you said about these guys. There's a few things that jump out at me, and the thing with Will, with being the, the grandson of Harry Truman, there, there's a number of things in there where, as, as I'm reading it, I mean, from my perspective, don't necessarily uh, come off as being a, a, as sympathetic, but I, I, when, I'm re when I get to the part, I, I sort of sympathize with him at a part that I really didn't think that I would. The part about the uh, rededication of the USS Missouri and going there and where his mother was going to be front and center and it was going to be in honor of his grandfather, uh, and they were just sort of asking him to put aside his politics and everything like that. I, I think it's uh, fair from reading this to say that uh, his politics uh, probably don't match up very well with mine, uh, nor my thoughts on family loyalty versus what he ended up doing. But this is one of those weird things, though. I almost weirdly do have sympathy for him because... Uh, particularly if he had the thoughts that he did about nuclear weapons, and he seemed to uh, have some issues with that, that ship having nuclear capabilities. His grandfather is literally the only man in the history of the planet that ever dropped the bomb and did it twice. So you, you wonder what kind of a thought that could leave in your psyche, particularly if you come to question the morality of it, as so many have subsequently. So that's a unique and sort of interesting burden to carry around. If you're completely convinced of the righteousness of it, then it's not a burden. If you're not as convinced about it, then uh, that might account maybe for some of why he uh, was as ambivalent or uh, perhaps worse than ambivalent about his family heritage. I think that's uh, very perceptive on your part and absolutely right. I mean, uh, you contrast Will's uh, experience with his grandfather and the dropping of the atomic bombs with Will's older brother, Cliff. Uh, you know, the last time I took, talked to Cliff, uh, you know, Cliff, uh, first of all, he embraced his family. Uh, he is on, like, the board of the Truman Foundation or the Truman College or Foundation or whatever. Uh, and and at, at one point, I don't know that he actually succeeded in doing this, but he uh, was going to write a book about his grandfather uh, dropping the nuclear bombs. Uh, so he, he would freely talk about his uh, who his grandfather was, and Will never would talk about it. He would get mad at his older brother, angry at his older brother, uh, uh, for uh, uh, mentioning to anybody that they were related to Harry Truman, because obviously their last name was Daniel and not Truman. So it wasn't a given, like with John F. Kennedy Jr., who his heritage, who his, who his family was, and his lineage. So Will felt very ambivalent about all of this, and obviously it all came out at that rededication of the, you know, SS uh, Truman uh, with nuclear weapons, uh, and he just uh, freaked out uh, and basically abandoned the family and the ceremony. 
uh, even after they had sort of spent weeks uh, encouraging him to stay calm. Uh, his, you know, the woman who went with him, who was his good friend, you know, tried to encourage him to keep it together, uh, but he just couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, I think that he was a very complex guy, and I think a lot of that comes through in, in that section of the book. And one of the favorite lines that he wrote, uh, which I think uh, shows just how complex he was, and, you know, my youngest son uh, pointed this out uh, as well as one of his favorite lines. He wrote a letter to one of his Yale roommates uh, uh, who was living in St. Louis as a lawyer, and he wrote a letter about how he just started dating a new woman, and Will never got married. Uh, he was dating a new woman, but he now sort of made it a practice to break up with her before they really got dating uh, to get that out of the way, because he knew that at some point he wa he wasn't going to be able to commit to a long-term relationship, and he was going to have to break up and get on with his life and go in a different direction. And so, to sort of shortcut that process, I mean, it was part funny, right, but part very uh, revealing about his own character and his character flaws and his inability to commit to anybody or kind of anything. Uh, and uh, I thought that was uh, quite revelatory. Yes, I think so as well. And uh, again, in, in terms of the common thread that was shared, uh, at the very least, in terms of Will and Harry and uh, John Kennedy Jr., in terms of how their deaths were, were all, in, in, in to whatever degree or another, certainly preventable, this is one of these things where my sense is that this book is very relatable uh, because even if, again, when you're going to Andover, uh, you are surrounded by people who uh, many would say are uh, the winners of life's lottery, or however you would classify it, but, but people who uh, have uh, the world right there at their fingertips. And I, I will tell you, I, I don't identify with that personally, uh, because I, I come from a uh, working-class suburb in uh, Parma, Ohio, and uh, everyone's parents were either uh, blue-collar or, in the case of mine, uh, teachers, so white-collar but not wealthy. Uh, and then it, it, you, you add on to that uh, a lot of our parents at the time being World War II babies. So a real sense of sort of practicality of being sort of rooted to the earth in a, in a way where it, it, nobody really sort of had the kind of flights of fancy. But then every once in a while there'd be somebody who was capable of breaking beyond that. I think back to our class valedictorian who went to MIT and, uh, again, just reputed to be one of the most brilliant people on God's green earth, uh, but then goes to MIT and uh, some of that recklessness kind of kicks in. Uh, it passes away in a DUI accident. Everyone was really kind of shocked, but it was a thing where, you know, he, he was flying on those gossamer wings, it seemed like, you know. So I, I think a lot of us probably at least know one story like this of somebody who had sort of graduated to the elite in society and then just couldn't handle it, much like alcohol and other things like that, gambling. There might just be people, William, that, that are just incapable of handling this kind of privilege and, and, and incapable of uh, feeling anything other than invulnerable. Well, let me, let me say uh, about uh, Andover uh, at that time mm -hmm. in the mid-'70s. I mean, obviously, uh, it was an elite institution. Uh, the, you know, I felt privileged to be there. Sure. Uh, 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 you know, it's the oldest secondary school in the country. Uh, you know, it had graduated uh, two presidents of the United States, the only high school in the country to do that, uh, the Bush father and son. Uh, but I will say this. In, in the mid-'70s, 
unlike in later decades, the discrepancy between rich and poor was not nearly what it is today. Uh, uh, the wealth inequality is not nearly uh, what it is today. I mean, there were, yes, children of privilege, uh, people like you know, Will Daniel, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, you know, Harry Bull, uh, but there were also people like Jack Berman and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we came from much more ordinary uh, 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 homes, uh, 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 you know, not uh, impoverished by any means, but there were people. I mean, one of the important credos of Andover was that youth from every quarter was welcome there. And so I felt in Andover an extreme amount of uh, ecumenical fervor. Uh, I, I didn't feel people were judging one another for any reason uh, at all, basically, but if they were judging, it was because of, you know, how they ranked sort of academically and intellectually and creatively. It wasn't about who had more money or who had more privilege or who had more opportunity. Uh, I felt that that was not nearly as prevalent in the mid-1970s as it obviously is today. There were not people whose parents had private jets and homes in the Hamptons and, 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 and you know, ex, you know, there weren't billionaires, you know, walking around uh, every time you turned to your left or your right. And, you know, there weren't these people uh, uh, of children of extreme wealth. Uh, it just, I mean, you know, the, the most the kind of the wealthiest person we could kind of think of at that time was probably John F. Kennedy Jr. And that's because his mother was married to, Aristotle Onassis right. uh, for a period of time. I mean, so uh, I guess I, w- I would say that uh, I definitely feel uh, privileged to have gone there and to shared experiences with these people. And obviously I wanted to write about that, but it, it wasn't nearly what I think uh, people probably think of it as when they think about Andover. Oh, those, those privileged, you know, white kids you know, who cares about them? I mean, I think that, that these were real people. Uh, they had uh, real issues that we all confront, uh, 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 hopes and dreams, uh, and they confronted the real world just like everybody has to confront the real world. And the myths that were created at Andover about, you know, what you could do to succeed and, and your, your path to glory uh, I think uh, each and every one of them confronted that uh, in in their lives after they left Andover, and I think I have too. And I think it's it's just a very uh, sort of interesting dynamic that takes place and seeps into your DNA. Uh, and when you go to a place like this, it makes you seem like you're, as I say in the book, part of some sort of Delta Force, some s- seemingly invincible. But in fact, in the real world, we're all too. Invincible. We're all too uh, uh, human, uh, and uh, you know, one day you can think you're going for a sail uh, on the uh, uh, Lake Michigan with your two, uh, two of your three children, and next thing you know, that's it. You think you will be coming home from a party in Brooklyn, uh, crossing Park Avenue, and that's it. You think you're going for the weekend to, you know, your family compound to a wedding. Uh, in in the uh, southern coast of Massachusetts, and that's it. Or you're going off to work, uh, representing your client in a deposition, and that's it. And that's, you know, that's the way 
life can be. You you think you're going to the Walmart one morning in El Paso and that's it and or or in Dayton. I mean and you you realize that life is very fragile as you said. It I tried to capture the fragility of life regardless of your uh, where you were born and how you were raised. Life is fragile and I think you know you have to remember that as you go through it and try and it's not easy but try to live your best life that you can you know every day absolutely and uh, yeah I think that's the predominant theme of the book in my estimation anyways is the fragility of life and I'm glad you fleshed out the differences between and over then and now because I think that's very illuminating to bring this thing all the way around uh, I, again I have to ask you about some of the JFK Jr. stuff in here because I think I might be able to, I'm, I'm going to frame a question in a way that probably nobody's ever done before when it re relates to JFK Jr., because we're not used to thinking of him this way. We think of him frozen in time, that tabloid figure. I mean, I've seen him in the tabloids again just recently with the, the, the new, you know, they, they're, they're dredging up stuff about the 90s and his life with his wife prior to then, but it's interesting because you take a look ahead, potentially ahead anyways, at what might have awaited had things gone differently for him, potentially a run against George Pataki in 02. And we're used to thinking about society, how would things have been different if John F. Kennedy had lived, uh, had not been assassinated in 1963. I actually watched that great uh, show on Hulu 11-22-63 where they sort of paint a picture of what might have happened if he lived. We're used to thinking of that, how things would have been different or if Bobby hadn't been assassinated in 68. Nobody ever thinks about how society would be different if JFK Jr. lived because... At the time that he perished, he wasn't on that level. But you look ahead, and again, he's frozen in time, so we don't know what a post-9-11 John F. Kennedy looks like in the arena, JFK Jr. We don't know. But if he could have beaten Pataki in 02, in 08, he is probably a two-term Democratic governor of New York. So you look at how history might have been different. Based on how you're postulating in here what might have lie ahead for him, I mean, we're, we're in a situation where is Hillary somebody who wins in 08 because she's, she's able to split the pack with Obama, John Edwards, and JFK Jr.? Does Obama still win? Does JFK Jr. win and serve as a two-term president? Uh, it would have been tough running after George W. Bush because, again, typically we, re we elect presidents that are different than the one that came before them, and I don't think electing the, th the third uh, son of a president as president right after the second one uh, was necessarily going to work in his favor. But as you say, America had really kind of clutched this guy to his bosom, or to, to our bosom ever since 1963, especially in the salute at the casket. So there are so many things that you postulate in there just by saying uh, that he that that he was looking to run. He was looking to get into the family business, and there are, again, you sort of leave it at that point there of what might have happened. But you open up so many unanswered questions about how everything in American life might be different today had he lived, because who knows where he could have gone. Well, I, I'm you know as convinced as ever that you're right. He he would have if he had run against Pataki in 2002. I think he would have won. Uh, he would have been a. I don't think he would have uh, challenged Obama uh, in 2008. Um, he already proven he wasn't going to challenge Hillary in 2000 for the New York Senate seat. He, they wanted him to do that. He was thinking of doing that, and he decided that uh, he wouldn't do that. He would let Hillary run, and of course she won. Uh, I think he would have absolutely have recognized the political. 
And I think he would have respected that. So actually what I think is that we would have perhaps seen a John F. Kennedy Jr. versus Donald Trump 2016 Ooh, election. Wow. And personally, I don't see how Donald Trump uh, could have uh, beaten John F. Kennedy Jr. I think there was just, you know, we can stipulate, you know, that Donald Trump has a lot of wattage, too. Uh, uh, but I think that John Kennedy Jr. had much more wattage than Donald Trump, uh, was much more famous than Donald Trump, uh, and would have uh, uh, swept swept the field, uh, you know, or certainly would have stitched together the Electoral College victory that he would have needed to win, and we would be living under a John F. Kennedy Jr. administration right now instead of a Donald Trump administration. That, uh, that is mind-blowing to, to think about that, but you're right. I mean, I, I, I can't argue with your logic on that. Uh, I, I will say this. Had he run in 08, had he decided to, uh, this is one of the things that uh, when you reflect back on that race, one of the big turning points in there, I think things were already starting to tilt momentum-wise Obama's way, but one of the big tipping points was when Ted Kennedy endorsed him over Hillary, and that came as a shock to a lot of people because it was somewhat going against the grain because she was as close to an establishment candidate as you could possibly have at that time. So uh, at the very least, if he was running, you wouldn't have Ted throwing his support to Obama and uh, tilting it in that way. But, uh, yeah, yeah, all these uh, all, all these counter... I don't think he would have run. Okay. I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have. I, I think he would have seen the historic significance of either the first woman Democratic nominee or the first black Democratic nominee, and would have respected that. Uh, and you know, he in 2016 he only would have been, uh, you know, 56. So still, still young. Not as young as his father. But still young and uh, you know still vibrant, and I think he would have respected that. And then run in 2016, swept the field, and uh, would be president today. Well, and, and and again, I guess that's as good of a way to bring this sort of full circle as far as looking at uh, how life turns out and how it goes counter a lot of times to what you expect, which is I, I think probably another uh, theme of this book because. Flashing back to 99, uh, at the time that John F. Kennedy Jr. got on that airplane, uh, again, somebody potentially with a bright political future in front of him, uh, somebody who was, as you said, known worldwide, Barack Obama, a complete nobody at that time, and and, and ultimately was pretty much politically for uh, the next couple of years. 20 years later, Barack Obama's a two-term president, and, and we are sort of straining to remember uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. Again, your book does a lot to kind of flesh out uh, the real story behind him, but that's one of those things. You wouldn't have believed that in 99, looking ahead 20 years, it would have been, ah, who's, who's Barack Obama? And yet he's the guy who's a two-term president. John F. Kennedy Jr. doesn't live to see any of it. Uh, again, that, that really, I think, is another sort of theme of the book, is uh, you, you really just can't see ahead, uh, you know, as far as what's going to happen in your life, the emergences in other lives, because th- that's a microcosm right there. Nobody could have seen those two developments coming, John F. Kennedy Jr. dead and a guy named Barack Obama becoming president. The, the fragility of life. It is. 
It truly is, and uh, this book does so much to sort of bring that about as far as uh, the, the lessons behind it. Four very compelling stories, and as you said, uh, very human stories. These are very compelling stories to read. Uh, I, I felt you really did justice to your friends in terms of fleshing this out and giving the sort of three-dimensional picture of the lives that they lead and the demises that they met. Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short by William Cohen. William, as always, thank you for being on the show. Another wonderful conversation with you, sir. Really, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, William, and uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to FDH Lounge mini-episode number 1131. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, All Clear Channel Affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IamBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio, Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, the Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse and the Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of Elements. 